You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Sick Transit There was a foul odor coming from the house. The odor, as it turned out, of rotting flesh, but nobody did anything about it, at least not at first. I was away at the time, my business taking me to the East Coast for a series of fruitless meetings with a consortium of inadequate and unserious people whose names I forgot the minute I settled into the first-class cabin for the trip back home. And so I had the story from my wife's walking partner, Mary Ellen Stovall, who makes her living in real estate. We'd always wondered about that house, which was something of an eyesore in the neighborhood, or would have been an eyesore, that is, if it was visible from the street. We went by the place nearly every day, my wife Chrissy and I, running errands or strolling down to the beach or the club or one of the shops and restaurants on the main road. The houses around it, tasteful, well-kept, and very, very pricey, were what you'd expect from a California coastal community, in styles ranging from craftsman to Spanish mission to contemporary most of them older homes that have been extensively remodeled, in some cases taken right down to the frame or even to the original slab. But what this one looked like was anybody's guess, because the trees and shrubbery had long since gone wild, so that all you saw was a curtain of green enclosing a gravel drive, in the center of which stood, or rather listed, an ancient, rust-spattered Buick the size of our two Priuses combined. T.C. Boyle is the author of many books worth your valuable reading time, from World's End to Drop City to The Inner Circle to Talk Talk, A Friend of the Earth, The Women, When the Killing's Done, and San Miguel. His new book is Stories 2. San Miguel is now out in trade paperback. Thank you for joining me, Tom. Oh, my pleasure, Rick. Always fun to talk with you. When we look at Stories 2, this is certainly a tome. And one of the things I was thinking you're a guy who's written a lot of historic fiction. If you set a story in the time when the first stories in this book were published, it would be a work <laughs> of historic fiction. That's exactly right. And incidentally, the title is not Stories 2. It's T.C. Boyle Stories 2. But the way the art director got this together, he couldn't get it all straight across the, across the front because the original is called T.C. Boyle Stories. That's the first one, and it's the second. As you point out, though, the first one collected the stories that I'd written since I was a student on up through around 1998 when it was published. This one takes all the stories from then on. And yeah, that was a distant historical period, absolutely. I think that's one of the things that interests me about this work and your work is the way you handle historical fiction and the way your your fiction written back in history, in fact, the stories going back to the T.C. Boyle stories, uh, the way that those stories, they stand up. And I'd like you to just discuss about your approach to writing a short story. Whenever you write a short story, it's within a current period of time, whether mm -hmm. you're writing about something outside of the time you're in or not, trying to keep that story so it, it seems ever relevant. Well, <laughs> um, it's hard to say. Um, stories exist in their time. As soon as you've written the story, that day, it's already obsolete. Um, I was shocked early on in my career to see my story, Greasy Lake, which is in many textbooks and many um, high schools and so on, um, 
has footnotes, footnotes of things like um, Toots and the Maytals. Well, who are they? There's a footnote for that already, you know. <laughs> okay, the story's written in 85. I guess it is ancient times. Also, in collecting these stories, my, my hero here is John Updike, who collected his uh, early stories in a big, fat volume, and I presume we'll see a second volume eventually down the road. Uh, at any rate, he wrote also a preface, as I've written here. And in it, he mentioned that he reread his early stories and rewrote them for this book. I would never do that. Yes, of course, I read through them and organized them, but I wouldn't want to change them. I was happy with the way they came out. I worked very hard on them. There they are. They existed in their time. So the idea of a collected stories rather than maybe a selected stories, which I could do down the road some point, is a sort of a legacy. It's a history. This is These are the stories I wrote in this period of time. I wouldn't think about changing them. I, I like that idea. And I just, one of the things that interests me I love the preface of this book, and I think it's essential to read it. I think it's a, a wonderful piece of writing in and of itself. And one of the things you say in there is that you refute the common advice given to writers, write what you know, which seems to me completely insane since there are so many, I mean, I'm guessing Frank Herbert didn't know much about Dune. <laughs> well said, Rick. Um, well, I don't know if I'm refuting that. I'm just pointing out that it doesn't apply to me. Um, some authors write exclusively what they know. Some authors write exclusively autobiographical material, and that's fine. I'm just uh, trying to um, state my aesthetic in this preface and, and give a, a little precy of my career and so on and what I believe in. In my aesthetic, though, uh, I'm the type of writer for whom anything can be a story in any mode. So of the 58 stories in this one, you'll find everything from tall tales to uh, straightforward, uh, moving, realistic pieces. I, I Well, I would agree. And I'd like you to talk about when you encounter a story for yourself, how do you know which way you're going to take it? And, and does it arrive fully formed, or do you start out in one place? Do you sometimes end up surprising yourself with what a story becomes? Always, always. This is why I do it. I never know what a story will be. It evolves, and it's all organic. It evolves day by day as the process goes on. Now, you've asked me to read a little bit from the beginning of Sick Transit. This story occurred to me in this way. For a couple of years in our neighborhood, my wife and I would walk by this uh, place where you couldn't see the house. It was just a jungle uh, gone amok and, and, and a broken down car in the driveway, as in the intro to the story. Um, and I said to her, you know, I'll bet an old person lives there. And when that person dies, they will uh, clear this lot and build some giant mansion there. Well, it's exactly what happened, <laughs> you know. And in my telling of Sick Transit, the story you just heard the opening to, it happens like this, but... Everything in that house, you learn who lived there. He was an ex-musician. He had records. He had uh, tapes he'd made that had never been heard. He had a journal. Everything. Everything is taken straight to the dump. They come in with two bulldozers and plow it flat to dirt. Every blade of grass, everything goes straight to the dump. And I just, you know, wondering, sick transit gloria mundia, what, what are we worth? What are we doing in this world? What is all this crap that we collect? What does it matter? And so I wrote a story to find out. Boy, that sounds frightening be like what will happen when <laughs> when I kick the bucket. My wife says, those books, they're just going right now. I'm not going to find out where they Well, you have to establish the memorial library before you go. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a hope. 
it it interested me too that for you, the write your journey to writing in a sense began with a story that I also found very iconic. Uh, Flannery O'Connor's "A Good Man Is Hard to Find," and I think that you have the tone. If one were to boil down all your work and find some kind of average tone in some way, I would say it's pretty darn close to that story. Hmm. Well, that's something I never really thought of, but uh, as I mentioned in the preface, that story is the one that turned me on to the possibility of literature and writing when I was in college. <clears throat> Her tone there is satirical, of course, but what blew me away then and still blows me away about the story is that it begins in a very conventional way, like a sitcom. A family is going on vacation, and it's, it's, it's crazy. The grandmother brings along the cat, Pity Singh, even though her son says, no cats, and um, it's hilarious. But then everything turns utterly grim. Uh, it just a story turns on you, and I've always loved the concept of that. And my tone is often satirical. Um, I suppose if you looked over all my body of work, I've just finished my 25th book, by the way, a new novel, you could say that uh, essentially I'm satiric. But again, I like to write in all modes so that, as we said earlier, in the stories here, you'll find every possible uh, working mode. But I suppose I'm most comfortable in that satiric mode. A, a story here, for instance, of the new stories. There are 14 new stories here. The Marlban Manchester Musser Award is I a love story. That story. Oh, thank you. It's a story about a writer, um, and it's the only story I've ever written about a writer because writers always write about writers, and I felt I wanted to do something different. But here, <laughs> of all these stories, here's one about a writer. At any rate, it's very satiric of him and his profession, and yet he encounters something in the course of the story which turns the whole thing on its ear and makes it very uh, grueling and horrifying in some way. Uh, that's one of the things I think that, well, I, you describe your work as satiric, and I think that that I wouldn't I wouldn't say that your work is really satiric. It has some elements of satire, mm -hmm. but I think that satire, for me at least, is by definition somewhat unrealistic. And I think all of your stories seem like they could really happen, and in fact, many of them feel like they could happen because this world is that screwed up. But I think also that what makes your stories so good is that there's always an undercurrent of authentic emotion. And I'd like you to talk about writing from that undercurrent of authentic emotion that we even find in uh, the, the, the Marlbane Award story, but bringing out the comedic. And I think that that's uh, you know, an interesting uh, transposition that you do, humor and horror in the same mm -hmm. goal. All right. Well, you know, I'll accept your definition, Rick. I mean, it, it's not necessarily a satiric story, but satire does point at the writer. Uh, I'm making a little bit of fun of him. He's angry. He never leaves the house. He lives in his own mind. He's, he's been married several times. Uh, uh, he's egotistical and so on. So, of course, he is in for a fall. Uh, the horrible part is that on the train, he encounters uh, an odd-looking uh, man who has a little boy with him. And the boy, if you look twice, looks very different from the man and uh, doesn't even seem to be dressed very properly. And he's, he's a silent little kid of six or so. You later learn that the child has been abducted and abused. This is, uh, I think, indicative of the kind of uh, turns your stories take, 
where you you combine that, as I say, humor and horror. And I think that these two uh, somewhat separate genres are, are seemingly separate genres are really very similar to one another. I don't know if it's horror exactly. It's uh, life turns on you. And um, I also love to play with the idea of if you're in a comic universe, nothing bad can possibly go wrong, as in the Flannery O'Connor story. And yet um, it can in, in this fictional universe. As I've often said, you know, like all of us, I'm kind of bewildered by our lives on this planet, the fact that we are held a ransom to random forces. And yet when I create my own fiction, then I am the god of that universe, and I can impose any will I want and, and talk in any mode I want. And speaking of talking, as we heard in your reading, your stories just have such a great kind of conversational voice and feel. It, they seem almost as we hear them read and when we read them, they seem almost like stand-up. And I'm wondering uh, how often you yourself do it as stand-up and how often the stories themselves occur to you in a kind of a speak spoken mode. Well, they certainly occur to me in a spoken mode, even if they're in third person. Uh, they should be somewhat conversational. It depends, of course, upon the narrator. Sometimes I'll engage a formal narrator, like in uh, The Inner Circle, my novel about Alfred C. Kinsey, which is told by one of his acolytes in a very formal way. But generally, yeah, I do like the idea of the conversational story, uh, like uh, especially first-person narratives, like Los Gigantes in this, this uh, a new part of the collection, in which we it, it's, the story is told by a, uh, a very large man, uh, who lives in an unnamed South American country during the 30s. And uh, as the story evolves, and he is very conversational, he's telling us about his life and his problems, we realize that he has been selected by the dictator of the company, along with uh, nine other of the very biggest men in the country, to mate with the biggest women in the country uh, in order to produce, in the future, a very large army. And this brings up something else that I think is rather interesting about your work is that you have an interest in kind of uh, the way that humans perceive science and the way that science interacts with us. I'm thinking, too, of the how the the writer in the, the Marlbane Award is, is a technophobe. And, and you've been having a lot of fun with science throughout your career, haven't you? Yes, I have. And I'm, it's really biology and the environment that I address most often. And you could trace this through all of my stories from the very first book, Descent of Man, after the Darwin title, right on up to uh, When the Killing's Done of two years ago, dealing with the ecology of the Channel Islands. Yes, of course. But Riley, the writer in the Marlbane Manchester Musser Award, is a gentle, satiric poke at myself, of course. Um, I am a technophobe. I hate all machines, uh, which, by the way, are always broken. Have you noticed? Everything in our house is broken at all times. And I hate our dependence upon the machines. On the other hand, of course, the Internet is a miracle for writers in, in discovering little things and uh, referencing things and so on. I like to use technology, though, in its place. That is, make use of it rather than it making use of me. So I do like to... Um, turn it off. When you go out to uh, write, you I understand you spend a lot of time writing out in the redwoods. Yes, I do. I rent a house up in the uh, Sequoia National Forest and spend a lot of the year up there. This novel I've just finished, The Harder They Come, which is set in Northern California uh, near Fort Bragg, 
I just finished this summer, uh, mainly in the mountain. I finished just before I had to come off on the book tour, uh, starting in Germany and Austria, and then uh, coming back to the U.S. for the tour for the T.C. Boyle stories, too. Up there, there is no internet. So, of course, I can't find all the little facts I need. I have to wait till I get back home. But on the other hand, I don't have any distractions either. There's no phone. So that um, I get bored. And when you're bored, you work harder and longer and you read more. And I get to spend more time out of doors without any of the hassles of normal life. And I think it's good for the soul. It's relaxing. And of course, it is boring. So that after a week and a half or so, I go back down the mountain for a week, back to Santa Barbara, and uh, take care of business there and back and forth. And it's works pretty ideally for me in terms of getting work done and also in relaxing. One of the things I, I like about the introduction to this book is you tell us a little bit about yourself. I think maybe more than I've seen elsewhere and you're in a band and that just I just find that intriguing and your interest in music and in Bob Dylan so tell us a little bit about your band and I'm wondering have you continued to play somewhere are there some T.C. Boyle garage tapes that are going to be mowed down and taken <laughs> to the dump well um, I hope not I was only an amateur musician and just having fun with it because by the time I was uh, singing with the ventilators I was already well launched into a writing career, and that has obsessed me. I don't do any music at all and never have in many, many years now because it requires your full devotion and full concentration and rehearsal. You can hear me, for better or worse, howling, uh, I put my spell on you on tcboyle.com. You can just go on there right now and hear it. I guarantee it'll make the hackles rise on the back of your neck, <laughs> whether for good or bad, I don't know. The... Writing and music are very similar gifts, I think. It's important for me to read aloud and to perform for audiences because of the musicality of the language. This is all important to me. I read it to my wife every day when I'm writing a longer piece, not so she can criticize it, but just so I can hear how it sounds aloud. And I always listen to music while writing also so that I have this rhythm and beat behind me, even though I may not be conscious of it when I'm deeply into something. I just feel that the two are very much allied. What kind of music do you listen to when you write? Exclusively to classical music and jazz. And uh, with, with classical, that includes operas. As long as they're in a language I don't understand because I don't want to be drawn out of my meditation by English lyrics. So I can listen perfectly happily to uh, Puccini or to Wagner and, of course, to jazz and to uh, symphonic music and chamber music and so on, but not to uh, rock and roll or anything that would distract me. In, one of the things you tell us in your introduction is that, too, is that uh, you give us a little picture of your schooling and that you were taught by John Irving and, and John Cheever, and that that is a, a fascinating slice of history in and of itself. And Vance Bergele, who was John Irving's teacher at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Um, these were my professors at the workshop. Um, they stood as an example. Their work stood as an example. That's how you learn, learn to write, through having examples. As far as teaching, um, pretty much we're left to our own devices in the workshop. It's... Uh, it's a program in which you are left to write as much as you can. Uh, I, I don't think we were as sophisticated in those days with workshops as we are now either. And most of us didn't really have a, the vocabulary to, to address other students' work 
and, and to absorb it. What I got, though, was mentorship from all three of them, so sympathetic reading and somebody who said, uh, you know, hey, kid, you're on the right track, keep it up, which is pretty much all I needed because as far as the writing itself, this is something that just happens naturally for most writers. You have a very interesting sense of, of what is a story, and it shifts depending on what you're writing and who you're talking about and who your characters are. And I'm thinking in terms of the new stories, The Silence, uh, could you just talk about crafting these kind of different pieces and how you find, decide, this is a story? The stories in A Death in Kichuank, which is the fourth book included in T.C. Boyle's stories too, entirely new book, they're pretty much in the order that I wrote them. They just seemed to come out in a, in a way that reflected one off the other. And so that the first six of them, including The Silence, which is the second story in this sequence, were written just after I finished When the Killing's Done. The other eight were written just after I finished San Miguel. And so The Silence uh, came from a newspaper article I read. A guy was going to go uh, into a Buddhist retreat and be absolutely silent for more than three years, like the Buddha had done. Uh, so you must take a vow of silence. And he went there with his new bride, uh, and they couldn't talk to each other or have sex during this period. And I wondered, since I am the sort of person who's never shut up for one minute in his entire life, what that would be like. My wife tells me that uh, when we were young, we drove across the country once in a car without a radio, with a broken radio, and she told me that I never shut up or stopped singing for one minute the entire drive, and we're still married. It's a miracle. So I wondered, what would it be like? What kind of imposition would this be? And what do you find in the search for the inner self? Looking back at some of the stories in the earlier works, I'm thinking of After the Plague. There are a couple stories in there that look at the, this life, in a sense, from the afterlife. There's My Widow and After the Plague both kind of look at our world from afterwards. And I think that's an interesting perception. And, and I think that that's, there's something in that. In After the Plague, which is an early story of, of the second of this second volume, T.C. Ball Stories 2, probably as published around 2001, probably written a year or two before that, I was getting ready to write A Friend of the Earth, which came out in the year 2000, uh, which deals with global warming and projects into the future. After the plague preceded it, uh, I believe, probably, uh, we could look in the book and see what, what year it is. Uh, I think it's 97, if I'm not Probably 97. Mistaken. So I was probably thinking about all these issues, and then here came the story. It, it takes place after some kind of apocalypse has destroyed everybody, uh, which, which I think will happen uh, biologically, obviously. We are overpopulated. We're very uh, peripatetic. We're everywhere. We're, we breathe on each other. We sneeze on each other. And so, but it's a kind of um, satiric take on that, you know, on the apocalypse and kind of a funny story too. What would it be like? A lot of the stories I write are just what-if stories. As far as my widow is concerned, this is a first-person narrative, and I'm narrating from beyond the grave, and it's, it came out on Valentine's Day in The New Yorker, and I got lots of letters from women thinking how sweet it is, and I'm concerned about my wife, but if you look closely, <laughs> I'm kind of making fun of her as well, and I remember... Uh, She's very shy and doesn't want any attention, and I was reading this story when it came out to an audience, uh, I think at the L.A. Times Book Fair, and she came in late, 
here's the here's the cautionary tale here. She came in late. She's always late. And so everyone knew that she was my wife. They could see her coming down to the special seat, reserved. So after the reading, people knew it. she's the one. And a couple of women came up to her and said, are you the widow? And she said, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> when we, talk, we were talking earlier about uh, your interest in science, and I'm thinking of... P. Paul as being uh, an early al- one, yes, alarmingly, alarmingly prescient, yeah, uh, unfortunately and terrifyingly so. Okay, so P. Paul uh, imagines uh, it came from this that on is early on the internet there were sites in which you could go to see eight sexy college girls living in their dorm, but of course they were just actresses stripping in a in a house somewhere, you know. So I wondered about this. Of course, we've gone way beyond that now, where every moment is photographed wherever we go in the world. But it was the beginning of all of that. And I just wondered again, again, what if? Uh, what about privacy? What about love? Uh, what about voyeurism? What is it? Uh, what about the distance that these machines create between us so that it's the beginning of when we're all living separately behind our walls in our apartments where we don't even go out. Everything is delivered to the house. Everything happens through the Internet. We don't go to the bookstore and browse. We just browse at Amazon. Um, we don't have video stores anymore. We just download movies. It's all kind of designed to take us away from society in a way that is kind of cold and chilling to me. And so, yeah, if it's prescient, I was just meditating on that. Back then and uh, around that time in the early 2000s or, or late uh, in the last century. It reminds me of an old story about E.M. Forster, The, the Machine Stops. Don't know it. Uh, it's that the scenario you described, everybody sitting around in little cubes, being communicating with everybody else remotely, is pretty much what he uh, describes. And then, of course, uh, the title happens. Not, not a good thing. No, no. And there again is our dependence on all these machines, which are always broken, as I point out. Now, you talk about machines being broken. The machine that's not broken is the T.C. Boyle Prose Experiment Machine. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. I sure hope so, Rick. uh, I really like this idea because as I was reading these stories, I was also thinking that they are your, this is the way you are a prose scientist. You, You pose a problem for yourself and you solve it not using science, using prose. So I'd like you to talk about using language itself as a scientific uh, instrument. I love that approach, and I suppose it's true, Uh, although I never thought of it in quite those terms. Um, It's hard to explain to people who are not artists what an artist does exactly. I mean, I have never calculated anything that uh, if I wrote about this, I could make money, or I've never worked for anybody, I've never written films or anything like this. I've just done fiction. This is all I want to do. It's a kind of adventure. It's um, always discovering something new. It's just the way my brain works. So that we've just discussed several story scenarios of these new stories and some of the old ones too. Um, um, I'm living day to day as we all are seeing these enormous changes in society and wondering how this reflects on us because, after all, we are just big apes wearing clothes so we don't have to rape and kill each other all day long every day. And uh, no matter how sophisticated we are, we're still stuck in that, in those shoes. And um, I just wonder about this 
dichotomy and this, this sort of collision between these forces of our animal selves and our intellectual or spiritual or scientific selves and what it means. And so, yeah, it is always experimental. Every story is. Every novel is. I'm just trying to address certain things that concern me. And underlying it all, of course, is metaphysics. What are we doing here? Uh, who are we? How come we, among the other animals, can sit in a studio and talk about art? Uh, what does it all mean? So I don't think there's any end to that. I'm always fascinated by new developments. Um, story can be anything that I re recollect, for instance. There are some recollection stories in here, like A Death in Kichuank or Burnham Wood, or they could be tall tales, as we were saying earlier. I love the idea of tall tales, um, uh, uh, and there are a couple in here, like Los, Los Gigantes, you know. Um, or they could be um, something I read in the newspaper, like this little paragraph about a guy who's taking the vow of silence for three years. I just want to find out what it might be like. I want to dramatize it. You were talking a little bit about movies, and, and you've had movies made out of two of your works, exactly. No, actually, many, many of my oh, works. many of your but, works. But they're mainly short films. Two Hollywood films, uh, The Road to Wellville and then uh, The Lie. Uh, and The Lie is a story in this, in this collection, mm -hmm. and, and it too is an experiment. And I, I think that uh, I'd like you to talk about that story without giving it away and, and about your feelings about the film adaptation as well. Um, I, Joshua Leonard, the actor, made and directed and wrote the film from The Lie, and I appeared on stage with him uh, after its premiere, and we talked about film to book, a uh, book to film, and how interesting that is. Um, the Lie is a story that I often perform. A uh, guy is talking to you, and um, he has told one big lie. He didn't want to go to work. And, you know, we've all been there where you're working a dull job. He's, uh, he's working in a film uh, studio, and he's got a very dull job, and... He tells his boss that he's not coming in, and the boss demands to know why, and he says, well, the baby is very ill, when in fact the baby is fine. And then the next day, he can't stand it anymore. He tells the boss the baby has died. And what are the consequences of this lie? That's how the story plays out. The story ends elliptically, as stories often should, to bring you back into it. The problem Joshua had was, you can't end the story with the guy walking out the door. And he, Joshua also has a much sunnier view of human life than I do. And so his tone is different, uh, sweeter, I think, although the story has the same essential ethical conundrum uh, about this lie, this huge lie. He had to write an ending in which things turn out. How do things turn out? I didn't have to do that and didn't want to do that in the story. This is another reason why I have never been in, interested in collaborating on a film or writing a film with anybody. I'm only interested in being an artist who is in control of his own work. So I wouldn't want to do art by committee or collaborate with anyone on anything. <clears throat> it strikes me, too, that as I was uh, rereading Sam Miguel, that how much of your work is of a type that Reading it, the reading experience just can't be in any way parallel, duplicated, or in any way come close to a, a film experience, for which I'm thoroughly glad. Well, I think writers are, are often called cinematic, some writers, and, and I am, of course, but I, I grew up on cinema. However, 
we have to remember that books had to be cinematic before cinema had been invented. The author's job is to describe a scene and put you in it. Um, this is bottom line of what literature does. And I try my best. As far as San Miguel is concerned, I'm working from a diary, a fragmented diary, and a memoir. And I'm telling a story of two families that live separately on San Miguel Island off of the Santa Barbara coast, uh, one in 1888, the other in the 1930s. And the correspondences between their experiences were very interesting to me. And I thought I would tell the stories separately. This is why it's called San Miguel. That is, the island is sort of a character. The location is what defines these people and their stories. But I, as I wrote, uh, began to write, I realized that I could take a character from the first and have him now be a man in the 60s, and he could bridge the two stories, although I didn't know if it was strictly necessary. I'm glad that I did discover that, and it did bridge them. But I don't know if it's absolutely necessary. I think the reader gets the idea why I'm paralleling the two stories. Well, I like this, uh, reading this in concert with When the Killing's Done. What struck me is that these are stories about a place that's local to you. You live in Santa Barbara, so these are the Santa Barbara Islands. They're a place you could go. But in a sense, it's not local. You're not writing about a local time for much of, for both, much of both of the, the novels. So I'd like you to talk about that kind of strange conflicts between writing a story that's set in a place that's near you, but not really a local story. Mm. Part of the motivation for When the Killing's Done, which was the book um, from two years ago, um, it's was uh, to explore the idea of invasive species on these islands. Uh, the Park Service, it takes place in the last 10 years. The Park Service came in on, in 2001 and bombed Anacapa Island with rat poison in order to eliminate the invasive rats that had got there after the wreck of the Winfield Scott paddlewheel steamer back in 1853. Coming from San Francisco, by the way, to, the Pan to Panama, where there was no canal yet, where they could go across and then take the boat to New York with their gold. No one was injured, but the rats got ashore. 150 years later, the Park Service realized that uh, they're negatively impacting the ground-nesting birds and should be eliminated. And it created a tremendous furor. Specifically, one uh, animal rights activist went out there with a, with a, a confederate and big uh, sacks full of vitamin K and threw it all over the island as uh, the antidote to the rat poison. And they were arrested for feeding wildlife in a national park without a permit. So this stuff that you couldn't really make up, it's so <laughs> amusing. And that was my impetus for writing the book. And also, it was an excuse for me to get to know the islands. Uh, Santa Cruz, the big one, and, and uh, the small Anacapa is, is just off of it, uh, are right directly across from Santa Barbara. This is what you see right from shore, uh, 26 miles out. And I'd never been there until I wrote the book. San Miguel is the farthest out, the coldest, the windiest, and the most denuded by the sheep, which are now removed. It's sand dunes. It's, it's bleak. Uh, they get uh, very few visitors out there every year. Even today, with our fast boats, it's a four-and-a-half-hour ride, and you have to camp out in the ca only campground on the island until the boat comes back a few days later. So it's difficult. 
So now I have to ask, 26 miles across the bay, is that, is that Santa Catalina, too? Santa Catalina is waiting Santa for Santa Catalina is one of the Channel Islands. Oh, okay. Of the southern ones off of L.A., uh, and I've never been to Santa Catalina. Um, well, you should go there. I would like to, and I almost, I almost did last year. I was going to have a few days off with my wife thinking, uh, since I've written about some of the other islands, I'd like to see it, and, you know, it has hotels and whatnot. But then I realized I'd have to turn left and go down and fight L.A. traffic to get there when I could just turn right and come north, where there's <laughs> nobody for a while anyway. You know, one of the things I really uh, liked about San Miguel was there, was a, there were a couple of scenes that uh, mirror one of the stories that's in Stories 2, the doubtfulness of water, uh, about the difficulty of traveling. And I think that that's an interesting theme for you. Yeah. Um, again, this was taken from one of the earliest diaries in America, in American history. And um, it's, it's, this woman called Madame Knight traveled in 1702 from Boston to New York and left a diary about it. And I was just fascinated by the idea of how we can get there by an airplane in, uh, you know, an hour and a half or something. Um, and yet it took her, it's a, it was a major, major feat to get there. She had to go along the post road with the, with the postman himself um, because there were no other roads. And it was wild country. It's just amazing to me to imagine it, to imagine what that must have been like in a time before everything was already pre-programmed for us and nature beaten back. Now... One of the things that I, in in San Miguel, I really love the sense of the world you create there because it's such a intense and confined place. And I'd like you to talk about creating that world. And you know, the the prose is really tight in this book, and it has a much less. I, I'd say there's not a lot of humor in this book. There's no humor. Yeah, it's written. Uh, I, I intentionally did it this way. I wanted to see if I could write a long narrative in a straightforward realist mode without humor. And it was pretty much suggested by the tone of uh, Marantha Waters' uh, uh, fragmentary diary and then um, Elise Lester's full account of her life there in the 30s. Um, and it's entirely told from the point of view of women also. Uh, I didn't realize it would go that way at first, but then I, I understood that this is more true to the diary and to the history. Marantha Waters lived in San Francisco. She was 38. She was a widow, remarried to a Civil War veteran. Uh, she had an adopted daughter named Edith, 15. She lived here. She had a piano. She had a cat. She had an urban life. Her husband convinced her to take the $10,000 from her first husband and invest in this island and its sheep operation. This is how they made money, through selling wool. She, unfortunately, was tubercular, and he convinced her that if she leave this freezing town of San Francisco and go down south by Santa Barbara off this island, it would be so much sunnier and warmer. But in fact, this is where the northern current collides with the southern current, and the weather is horrible and it's even colder and more miserable than San Francisco, if that's possible. And anyway, she was ill-suited for it, but she left this diary in which she's trying as a wife to satisfy her husband and his desires to to strike out on their own and live independently of the whole world on their own island. Um, and it's very sad. 
there were only six characters in real life. Her husband, her, her adopted daughter, and three um, hired people, an older man, a boy, and, um, and a, a young woman who was their cook. And it was almost, to me, in reading the diary, it almost in reading between the lines, it was almost like a Eugene O'Neill play, you know, with these characters stuck on this island with only themselves for entertainment. So it's quite fascinating, and that's what got me going on writing this narrative. I think it's a really compelling story. And when I was talking about books that might not make that it strike me as reading experiences, primal reading experience, this is a great example of that because you put us in the mind, you put us in this place, and you have a very interesting sense of story. And it must have been, uh, I think, as a writer, talk about dealing with the reality of what's in these two diaries mm. and how that bookends what you're able to do as a writer. I like to be true to the history because I'm fascinated by the history. Um, again, my job is to dramatize it. And it becomes very hermetic. These It's a small cast, as in a play, as we were saying, in both the stories that I'm telling, uh, uh, the later story of the Lesters as well, which is a better-known story, by the way, than, than Marantha Waters. Edith, the young daughter, does escape the island and does come to San Francisco and becomes a star of the stage uh, in the early 1900s. And I do tell that, that that happened, but only in retrospect, because I didn't want to take the story off the island. On the island to be a major feature of this, a determining feature that um, separates people from the shore, as you know, island imagery from the, I suppose the first uh, poem ever written would 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 talk about. Uh, and let's talk a little bit uh, about uh, Elise, uh, and and that story because that's a really interesting story too. There's a we know a lot more about that one, and again. You're, as a writer, you want to be true to the history, but you also want to be true to your impulses as a writer to go where you don't know things. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing for me was, you know, uh, Elise also was 38 when she went out there. She was a librarian in New York City. And like Marantha before her, she was swept off her feet by a man, in this case, Herbie Lester, a very energetic guy who was also a war veteran, but of World War I, not, not the Civil War, as Marantha's husband had been and was convinced to go out here. Unlike Marantha, though, she throve under these conditions. Even though she was so extremely elderly at 38 and a spinster, she was able to produce two beautiful daughters to live on the island. During the Depression, they became quite well-known. They were featured on radio shows and in the press because everybody, uh, you know, waiting in this miserable, uh, waiting on soup lines and bread lines and so on, soup kitchens, bread lines were fascinated by the idea of what they called Swiss family Lester, that this family could be self-sustaining on this island. They weren't actually self-sustaining, but people imagined that they were and, and reached out to them in that way. So Marantha was unsuited for it. She only spent six months, less than six months on the island, but Elise was, and she really thrived there. Uh, now, uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about one of the things that's interesting in this book, I really like uh, Edith as a character, and her story is really interesting. And I love the relationship, the way her relationship to Jimmy 
as opposed to a mirror between her relationship with her stepfather. And I think that you work that out really well. Well, thanks. Uh, the story, for those who don't know, concerns this. Marantha, who had tuberculosis, died two years later. Meanwhile, Edith, the girl, was now 17, was back in school in San Francisco. She was a dancer and a singer, and she was in a girl's school up here. The evil stepfather, as in a fairy tale, uh, didn't like the fact that she was outside of his ken and maybe flirting with boys or whatever she was doing up in San Francisco. So he dragged her out of school, brought her back, as in essence, just to be a servant on this island. And from the minute she got back, she plotted her escape. Jimmy, who was the farmhand about her age, uh, she had her first sexual experiences with him, in my telling. I don't know what happened in real life, but I expect it probably did. But in a fumbling and and, uh, childish way, she did finally use her womanly power to escape this island and, as I said, come back to San Francisco and actually make a career on stage as she had wanted to. Uh, And by the way, I thought I'd only tell from the point of view of the two mothers, but my daughter got involved in uh, the research with me as I told her the story, and she insisted that I should tell the the point of view of the 15 and then, of course, when she was 17-year-old girl, um, struggling against this kind of adversity of being separated in her adolescence from all Congress, and not only with, with boys, but with her own peer group of girls as well. As a writer, do you find yourself stepping out to do a short story when you're doing... No, never, never, never. Now, we've talked before, Rick. Mm -hmm. This must have come up before. Never. Um, I'm very single-minded. I only work on a novel in its period and then on stories in in their period. And I've never had the experience of um, having a story idea and expanding it to a novel or vice versa. I'm kind of rigid about that. Um, So tell us a little... Can you tell us anything about the novel you just finished? Yeah, it's called The Harder They Come... I just delivered it, uh, I finished the end of August and delivered on September 7th, be, uh, because September 6th, because on the 7th that was when I had to go to uh, Austria and Germany. Austria had uh, picked my book, The Tortilla Curtain, for their Eine Stadt, Ein Buch program, the citywide read in which they give 100,000 copies away. And then my German publisher sent me off on the German tour for San Miguel in translation. Then I had to come back to America and uh, go off on tour for T.C. Boyle Stories too, and, and San Miguel in paperback. So I pushed real hard on this new novel uh, because I was so close to the end, it would be really difficult to go away on tour and come back and and finish it. And I was in the mood and the spirit of it, and it came flowing out of me like nothing I've ever done. It's um, set now, or actually two years ago, in, uh, in the Fort Bragg area, and it's about American violence and its roots, and a shooter, in fact. And also this whole anti-authoritarian streak in Americans uh, where we want to live apart, as in San Miguel. We want to live apart. We want to live in nature. We want to make our own rules. We don't want to follow laws. We don't wear motorcycle helmets. You know, we, we, we want to smoke wherever we like. We don't want to pay taxes, this sort of thing. And, of course, there is a whole movement called um, Sovereign Citizens who feel that they have withdrawn from the U.S. and have no... Uh, no contract with us, as they say. And so I've explored all this uh, in a scenario of three major characters. Well, that sounds like fun. <laughs> it sounds like you're a little bit back into your satiric mode, I, it's, I'm uh, guessing. It, is, it has some uh, satiric humor, but it's essentially a drama, as you'll see. I will look forward to seeing it. 
I've been speaking with T.C. Boyle. His newest book is T.C. Boyle's Stories 2, and out in paperback is Sam Miguel. Thank you for joining me, T.C. My pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.